Well, good morning, church. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our trek or, uh, or our sprint through First uh, John, and there's a lot that could be said as we work through this book that won't be said. Uh, we're not going to hit on every verse, but we will get to some of the main points of this letter. Now, maybe as you're turning there, I want to let all of you know that on the 20th of January, so January 20th, uh, in Doaktown, they're having a day of prayer and fasting from 9 o'clock until 5 o'clock, uh, but there'll be, there'll be uh, some preaching from, I think Dave is going to preach, Hugh Morrison from Cape Breton, and Lord willing, Paul Washer will be there on the screen. So there'll be a day of prayer and fasting in Doaktown on the 20th um, for any, any man who is interested, and I pray that you would be interested because uh, prayer and fasting is something that the church has very often given themselves to. Uh, there are many things that only happen through prayer and fasting. You remember when um, the man brings his son to Jesus, but Jesus is up on the mountain and the disciples can't, his disciples can't cast the demon out of the son and heal him. And they say, what's going on? And Jesus' answer is, these kind only come out by prayer. And there are some things that are only accomplished in your life by prayer and fasting. And if we want to see the Lord move in 2024 in our own hearts, in our families, in the world around us, if that's something you want to see, then the biblical example of how this comes to pass, yes, it's by living as Christians, but a primary means given to us is gathering for prayer and for fasting. And so we're going to be doing that in Doaktown on the 20th. We'll be meeting here uh, at a time. We'll let you know when we know and then traveling to Doaktown together. So uh, mark that in your calendars, man. It will be a blessing for everyone involved. All right, first John. Now, just, just maybe to remind us of where we're going, there are there are three things that I, I hope to happen as we work through this book. One of them is that those who think they know the Lord but don't, they will come to a realization of that deceived state and be delivered. And what a wonderful thing to be delivered. It is terrible to be deceived. Now, secondly, that those who are struggling with an assurance of salvation would be encouraged and their faith strengthened, knowing the Lord's love for them, that they would know that they are His, and they would be strengthened and grow. And thirdly, that we would all be more sincerely and wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord and His commands in the coming year. That's the overarching goal, and I, I pray it will be a blessing to us all. So now let's turn to 1 John. Our passage this morning will be in chapter 2, verses 3 verse 6. 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandment. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this 
we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, it is precious. It shows us where we ought to go. It it hems us in with walls on either side of the way. And Lord, those walls don't trap us in. They protect us from wandering and they protect us from what is on the other side. Lord, you are our salvation. And there is no salvation outside of you. Lord, every warning of your word is for our good. Every command is to bless us and to glorify your name. And I pray this morning that you would work amongst us, encouraging your people, strengthening your people, cutting through lies that we believe, and letting us all the more strive to see your glory, to see you at work in our lives. That is what we need. We need you. And I pray, Lord, you would be pleased this morning to give more of yourself to us. And I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know what I'm talking about, Lord, let them know, let them taste and see that the Lord is good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we began this series last week by seeing the contrast of light and darkness, and that no one who claims to have fellowship with God walks in the darkness, but they walk in the light as He is in the light. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, this truth is at the same time an encouragement to some and a caution to others. It is an encouragement because it means if you have light, any light at all, even dim light or match light. You have light and not darkness. Now your walk with the Lord may be confusing, and your faith may be small, and your sins may be many, but if you have even a sliver of light, a a bare minimum of illumination, you are walking in fellowship with God. Now, of course, that's not where you want to be. You wish you had more light and walked more in its fullness, and amen to that. You should, and you should strive for it. Don't be content with indwelling sin. Don't be content with minimal Christianity. I mean, don't be content to coast along when you were called to advance a kingdom. If all you ever do is coast and the light never grows, that's cause for concern. But if your light is dim you might be tempted to think it is no light at all and that you are in the dark. The moment you believe that, if you're a believer who thinks he is in the dark, doesn't know God, the moment you believe that, you will be unable to do anything. And you must resist that temptation in order to grow. You must resist this temptation and accusation. And so, yes, the light is dim, and yes, you walk in shadows, but you're not going to be cut off and cast aside. 
Your God is with you, and your sins, though they are many, are forgiven, and you are loved by God. And as you are assured of this and grow in this, it will be oil for your lamp that it may shine and fill your heart so that you're not walking in dim places anymore. It is the total absence of this light that makes darkness. And there are those who claim to be in the light but are deceived. That's what we read. They think they have light. And they do not. They, they may have those things that point to the light, but they don't have the light. They may have things that can increase the light, like oil to a lamp, but they have no lamp and they have no ignition. They walk near the night light, but not in the light. And what's that look like? They do religious things. They practice certain practices of devotion. Maybe they're even preachers. They think they have fellowship with God, and they don't. They live, I, I mean, some people, this is obvious, they live wickedly, and some of you can attest to that. Yeah, I've been hurt real bad by someone who said they were a believer and were the most wicked person I've ever seen. Don't entertain for a moment that that person is in Christ. They are walking in darkness. Well, the question becomes, then, what is this light that distinguishes those who have fellowship with God from those who walk in darkness? Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1 begin to make that distinction. Those who deny their sin deny it because they walk in darkness. But those who confess their sins are purified from all unrighteousness. And this isn't speaking about that initial confession when you first come to Christ but the ongoing confession and, uh, and forgiveness that believers receive. You, you see this illustrated in John's Gospel in chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Peter objects, and Jesus tells him, Peter, you are totally clean. What does that mean? It means Peter is forgiven. His sins not credited to him. His eternal destination transitioned from death and hell to life and paradise with God. He's not going to be cut off from Christ and cast aside. Nevertheless, as he lives in this world and he walks, his feet get dirty. He sins. He is defiled. And he must be cleansed from this ongoing defilement and forgiven. 1 John 1.9, it says this is done through the confession of sins. Those who live in the dark, however, never confess anything to God or anyone else because they are blinded to their own sin. They don't think they, they, they don't just think, I don't do anything wrong, and so they don't need to confess anything. They, they don't think they need to be forgiven. It's like, uh, it's like Donald Trump a couple of years ago, and whatever you think of him politically, he's, he's no Christian hero. And when he was asked if he ever asked for forgiveness, he said, someone asked him, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? This was his answer. I'm not sure I ever have asked for forgiveness or felt the need to. I just go on trying to do a better job from there. I think if I do something wrong, I just make it right. I don't bring God into the picture. I just don't. This is a man who lives in darkness claims to have fellowship with the God who forgives and saves and says he has never done anything wrong that needs forgiving. He doesn't confess. 
He doesn't agree with God. He doesn't believe that the Lord is the only one who can take away sins. And did you notice that in his answer he came up with an alternative salvation? He came up with his own way. And I'm not saying this to criticize the former president. I'm just saying this by way of example. But he came up with his own way. Self-atonement. Do better. Make it right. No need to bring God into the picture at all. That's what Judas did. He went to the temple, gave back the money, confronted the priests, confronted the Pharisees, was full of remorse, never dreamed of bringing God into the picture. And Judas was lost. And if you think when you sin, you, you don't need to bring God into the picture, right? you just need to do better, that's Judas Christianity. It's some other gospel, and it's not the one that saves. The answer to your sin is not do better next time. It is go to the Lord and be forgiven. Anyone who doesn't take their sins to the Lord ever seeking forgiveness, they don't know Him. But when you live in the light, you know your sin. And you know that the only remedy for your guilt and the only balm for your conscience is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because you know this, you humbly go to Him to be cleansed because He is the only one that can purify you. It's like uh, I heard someone the other day and they were talking about uh, fear of needles. And they said, if you're afraid of needles, maybe you went to the doctor before and you were getting a shot and the doctor said, oh, it's just a little one. It doesn't matter if it's just a little one. It could be this big or this big. If you're afraid of shots, you're afraid of shots, and you don't like it. Well, he said, that's like sin to the believer. It doesn't matter if it's a big sin or a little sin. The believer is pained when they sin. And it's that pain of sin that drives you to the cross of Christ. But if you're never pained by sins, not big ones that cause all kinds of commotion and in your life, small ones that only affect you in the mind. Thoughts that come in, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have thought that thought. It's a grief to you. Please, Lord, forgive me. That's a believer's relationship with sin. And when they do sin, they go to Christ because they know He alone can make them clean. Now, this doesn't mean you don't make every effort to make things right. You ought to make every effort to make things, do every effort to make things right, but not to gain atonement, and not even primarily to remedy the wrong, but to be faithful to the one who forgave you and made you clean. God has forgiven me and made it right with me. I must go and make things right with others and live at peace as much as it depends on me. That's how Christians, that's how those in the light deal with their sin. They're, they're like the disciples who, when so many others walked away, you remember in, in I think it's John, John 6 or John 8, I think it's John 6, many walked away from him. He said hard things and they left and, and Jesus looks at them and says, will you go away also? You remember their response? Whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And there are times when the believer sins and they don't know what to do. They, they don't know how to make it right. They don't know where to turn. They don't know who to talk to. And there is a lot they don't know. But there's one thing that they do know. They know that there's one place they can go to have their sins forgiven. And that's where they go. They say, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else can I go? Lord, you're the only one who can make me clean. 
Where else can I go? And even in their sin, even in your sin, you don't hide it. But you go to the Lord and confess it to be forgiven and seek the strength to forsake it. Well, that's the end of chapter 1. We'll start in chapter 2 with verses 3 through 6. And and we'll come back another time for verses 1 and 2 because they're too precious to pass up. But we're going to start in verses 3 through 6. And we have another distinction between those who live in the light and those who still walk in darkness. The ones who know God keep His commands. Those who know God keep His commandments. Let me read again verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5 and a half. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. He was talking about knowing the Lord. By this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. And it's worth the time to reiterate here This is not someone who is only a casually Christian. You know what I mean by that? They maybe attend church once or twice a year. You know, on the census when it asks, what is your religion? They'll write, Christian. And they have a vague, maybe culturally informed notion of what that means. That's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about those who say, I know him. That word know, it has a special significance in Scripture, doesn't it? It doesn't mean just an intellectual knowledge, as in, I know facts or I know his name. But you have a relationship with him. These are people who claim to have a relationship with Christ. It's easy sometimes to confuse the two. Have you ever saw a fan of a celebrity? They know the celebrity's name. They know where he's born, know his age, know his real name, if he's using a fake name, know everything about him, all kinds of facts, could identify him. But guess what? They don't know him. They have no relationship with him or whatever the celebrity is. There's no intimacy at all. This is not unlike what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He says, many will come to me on that day. And he says, the day of his second coming. And they will come to him and they will say, Lord, Lord. And they will expect, this is why it's called a deception. They will expect in their minds, they're saying, I'm going in to glory. And yet they will hear probably the worst words that they will ever hear in their entire existence. Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, these are people who claim to have a relationship with Jesus but live as though he never gave them a command to be obeyed. They think any requirement, any command, any imperative, it's optional. And if someone like a parent or a pastor or a friend or a spouse, they press them on the necessity of doing what Christ commands, they get labeled legalists. But just just think for five seconds about this. Jesus, in his word, he gives commands to those who believe on his name, right? That's clear. We, We can all agree. Jesus tells Christians how to live. But not only does he give commands, he expects those commands to be obeyed. Matthew 28, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus commands you to obey all that he has taught. He commands the scriptural authorities over you not to stop 
until you are obeying the commands. The goal of teaching is not the imparting of information. It is the changing of the life. It's conformity to the commands of Christ. That's right in the Great Commission. Now, can you imagine the disciples on the eve of the Great Commission looking at Jesus and saying, that's awful legalistic of you. After all you've done, after all you've graciously done, now you want us to go and tell others to obey all of your commands? Can you imagine them saying that? No, you can't. Jesus tells his disciples to compel, compel obedience to his commands. He doesn't say, just teach them what they are, and once they know them, it's up to them. Teach them to obey what he commands. Without obedience, it's not the, the command isn't being kept. And, and this is not salvation by works. If you've been paying attention, you've noticed that. It's grace and salvation given to you freely. Therefore, now live this way. And I grant, it's possible, and some of you may have experienced this, it is possible for people to press requirements that are not scriptural and not the commands of Christ, and that would be a form of legalism, and I'm sure we're all familiar with that. Right? Have your hair a certain length. Wear this. Eat and drink this. Don't eat and drink that. All kinds of silly things. But when the Bible commands are clear and its implications obvious, they're not to be ignored. And that's why these verses come where they do. They go along with recognizing and confessing sin because God commands us what? Not to sin. And when we do sin, to confess the sin, he commands us to go to the advocate. But if we deny our sin, we can do neither. And so the command to confess sin is included in this. But it's far more comprehensive than just confessing sin. The Christian life is more than just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's much more than that. And of course, we don't have time to go through even just a book of the New Testament and all of the imperatives and all the commands and ask, are we keeping them? For one, it would take too long. Two, the answer is no, not as well as we should. And third, listen, that's really not what's at play here. That's not the point. It isn't talking about perfectly keeping every command that is given. And we know this because we've already learned that Christians do sin and they need to confess their sin. And what is sin? It's a failure to obey the commands. And if anyone says, I do not sin, they make God out to be a liar. And so at the very least, this means they do not always keep the commands of God. And everybody in this room, you fall short every day. So what is it talking about here? It's talking about style of life. How do you live? Do you live for the commands of Christ? Let me say that another way. Do you live for the will of God or do you live for your own? And these are not always in opposition. I mean, if you're a Christian, your will should not be in opposition to God's will. They ought to overlap in the majority of the areas and you want to please Him and you want to do His will. And so the question is, when you look at the whole scope of your life, do you follow the word of the Lord, or are you the master and commander of your life and destiny? It would be really easy to, the reason I say look at your whole life, it would be really easy for, well, let me give you an example. Let's say, you say, Corey, I, I really, I'm really doubting whether I'm in Christ or not. Can you follow me around for a day and give me your assessment? And I say, sure. And I come with a, a little Polaroid camera. 
and I come with the camera, and I'm following you around, and I catch you when you lose your temper. Kids really, really goading you, and, and I snap a picture. And then you're late for something, so you skip your devotion. I, and I, I, I snap a picture of you leaving your, your Bible behind as you run out the door. And, and, I, and, I, and I follow you around, and every time you sin, I take a picture of it, and then I have all of these instances captured, and I put them on a piece of paper, and I show you at the end of the day, and I say, look, here's, here's what you got. Well, what have I done? Have I captured the course of your life? I've captured moments from one bad day. Everybody has bad days, and everybody's going to have moments like that in their day. That's not a picture of your life. And sometimes when believers are thinking about, am I keeping the commands of God, and they're, they're you know, running their soul through this examination in 1 John, they go through and they say, well, I've got this picture and this picture and this moment and this moment, and they've got no hope and no assurance at all. But if I were to take a video camera and follow you around, you know what I would see? If I'm following around a believer, I'm seeing someone who, yes, they sin, but the course of their life is somebody who wants to honor Christ. They want to obey God, and when they sin, what do they do? They confess their sins. They go to their family and, and ask for their forgiveness. They make things right. Th there's more to this than just do I sin or not. It's the scope of your life. That's what's in view here. What is your life about? Who, who is your master? You know, in the scriptures, one of the names given to Christians, it's Paul's favorite title for himself, it's slave. And I was so thankful last year, Adam Renouf let me a little book uh, and it was simply entitled Slave, and it was going through the New Testament dealing with how often the word came up and, and how it was used and what it meant. And, uh, and reading through the book, it wasn't anything I hadn't heard before, and I'm sure you're all aware that you know, we're called in Scripture slaves of Christ, but, but it really made me stop and think, what does it mean to be a slave of God? And more importantly, is that me? It's unfortunate that in almost every modern translation, the word is translated as servant, sometimes bondservant, but that's usually not what the word is. It's the word doulos. It's a word for a slave. And in fact, the word doulos is used specifically to define a person who has a master or a lord. It's a word for one whose entire life was caught up in doing the master's will. That's what it means to be a slave, doesn't it? I have no will of my own. My singular concern is to do the will of my master. A slave doesn't worry about where they will live or what they will wear or what they will eat. They don't concern themselves about where they will go or where they'll end up. The only thing that matters to a slave is the will, the command of his master. His or her entire life is governed by the will of another. And here in 1 John, we're being told that those who walk in the light those who know him are those who do the will of God. They are slaves of God. And that could be a frightening thing, but everyone's a slave to something. Most people are slave to sin. Everyone's a slave to sin outside of Christ. And if you say, no, I'm not a slave to sin, okay, well, let's prove it. Go home today, and not, not even a whole day, just for the rest of the day. I am, I am going to pick 
10 sins that I did yesterday, and I'm not going to do them today. See how you do. Everyone's a slave to sin, slave to the devil, testimony of scripture. We believe his lies, he deceives us, manipulates us. Everyone is a slave to something. That changes how you think being a slave to God, doesn't it? You know, I, we, we didn't get to, uh, like I said, John, 1 John 1, 5 or 1 and 2, and it puts such a, a picture of, of, of God before us that when you see that picture of God, so I can, I can serve him, I can, I can put the all in my ear and give myself to him, I can be a slave of Christ. It's not a hard thing to do when you have such a wonderful master. And, and no one is free anyway. I mean, sometimes people, uh, when, when they're struggling in their soul and they're convicted and, and they think they should come to Christ and be saved, one of the things that holds them back is they're afraid to lose their freedom. Maybe that was you before coming to Christ. You were afraid to lose your freedom. And you thought, you know, right now I'm free, but if I go to God, I'll be a slave. That's not true. I mean, already so much in your life is dictated and determined by the world around you. You're a slave to the opinions of others. The clothes you wear are determined by somebody else. You're worried about what others think. You're worried about perception and so many things that can enslave you. And they are all cruel masters. God is not like that. He's not. He is good and kind and gracious. He is never ruthless and callous. He only ever commands what is best for us. He will never mislead us, not even by accident, because he is never wrong. And he calls us elsewhere in Scripture friends and sons. Slaves, yes, but also friends and sons. And for you, his will is broad. He commands certain things be done, and in many, many times he gives the leeway up to you to how they're done. He gives his people rest. He even gives us leisure and recreation. He's gentle and humble. He's not too proud to show he loves you. And because of who he is, there, there's nothing but joy and delight in submitting to his authority. It's the most freeing thing in the world. It's liberating to go from being a slave of sin, death, and the devil to being submitted and a slave to the will of God. Because we are slaves of a good God, that means as slaves we desire to practice and do His will. Not perfectly, but consistently. Now just to be clear, this is, this is more than a recommendation. Sometimes you'll hear that. Well, the commands of, of God, they're, they're recommendations. No, they're requirements. And they are indicators of those who walk in the light. In Matthew 12, 50, Jesus tells us, those who do the will of his Father, they are his family. That's who his mother and brothers and sister are. Jesus says, you want to know who my family is? You want to know those I identify with and call my people, my brothers? I'll tell you how to identify them. They are the ones who do the will of my Father. It's the same thing that's being said here in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. In the passage, it makes us slow down and, and, and be a little introspective and, and look at our lives and, and take stock and ask, who's really in charge here? Who or what am I really living for? Who is in the driver's seat of the life that I have been given? If it's anyone but God, can you honestly say that you are a slave of Christ? 
Now, you may be struggling to keep the commands, and God is in the driver's seat, but maybe you're riding shotgun, and you, you reach over, and you grab the wheel and try and turn it this way or that, and you suffer for it. You know, you think you know best, and as God drives, you, you sit anxiously alongside, and you reach over, and, and you're being an annoyance, and you're putting the patience of God to the test. Or maybe you're sitting in the back seat, and you can't reach the wheel, but you, you're, you're a backseat driver, and you're shouting at the Lord, and you're unsure of the direction He's taking you, and you're not convinced you can trust Him. You're not sure how obeying His commands will do you good, and you often think, I know better myself, and so you sit in the back seat with your doubt, and and your lack of faith, faith manifests itself in words and complaining more than actions. Or maybe you're full of faith and you've handed the keys to the Lord. <clears throat> you've gotten the trunk and you've said, Lord, go where you want. Tell me when we get there. It's all good. And you've entrusted every turn, every on-ramp to the Lord. You've entrusted him with the destination, how fast you go, when you get there, when you stop. And you prove it. You prove that faith, show it by seeking to obey his commands. You learn what he's called you to do, and then you do it, even if it doesn't seem best in your eyes. Now, there's variation in all of these people. And everyone ought to yield more of their lives to the Lord. That ought to be your goal in 2024. Lord, take more of my life and bring it into captivity to your son. This area that I struggle in, take it, Lord. This area, let me grow. This area, it's yours. I'm giving it up. Well, do you know what each of these people have in common? They're not in the driver's seat. They do ultimately, and to varying degrees imperfectly, keep the commands of Christ. That is their desire. They want to. Some very faithfully, some very feebly they want to honor God. So the question is, who is in the driver's seat in your life? Who's giving you marching orders for how you think and act and speak? Who are you living for? I mean, there are many competing masters in this world. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters? Right there, money is a master. Money is all some people live for. For others, it's something as basic as their own hedonistic pleasure, and they just live for a good time, and that's their only ambition in life. I just want to feel good. Or maybe, and, uh, and this might surprise some of you, maybe it's your own family that's mastered you. It's an easy snare. Now you object. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to work and supposed to take care of our bodies that God gave us and supposed to give sacrificially for our families. And you're right, we are commanded to do all of those things, but we're also told how to do those things, and we're forbidden from doing one at the expense of another. God tells us how we will relate to our work, to ourselves, to our families, to the church, and to the world around us. And if any one concern begins to swallow up all of your time and prevent you from doing anything else that God commands, it's mastering you. I mean, one might work all the time and neglect the family God gave them to care for according to his word. You know, I had, I had a story the other day of a man who was, uh, he was offered a job in his company that paid twice the salary he'd been making. Paid him twice as much. Now his family had a roof over their head, they had food on the table, they lived modestly. And so he turned the offer down, and his employer was shocked. He didn't understand. It's twice the salary. What are you doing? He told him, this job would mean a lot more hours. 
And my family doesn't need more food or more clothes or a better house, but they do need their father. Someone mastered by money would never have had the wisdom or the wherewithal to do that. Or one might be always concerned about having as good a time as they can. And they're always tired, and they're always sleeping in, and they're always late for work, and they're mastered by their pleasures so much they can't even hold a job. I had a roommate like this in college, unfortunately. Played video games all the time. It's all he could do so much. And you say, what's wrong with that? He couldn't even hold a job. He was so addicted. You probably know people like this, too. Or one might be so concerned for ministry that ministry has become an idol. And I see this a lot. Ministry is an idol, and so they neglect their families. And they say, well, if anyone loves father or mother, spouse more than me, and they use that verse out of context to justify ignoring everything else God commands about being a parent and a spouse, and not only do they disregard the commands of God, they do it in the name of righteousness. Matthew 15 condemns every form of that. God never asks anyone to sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry. Family is a ministry. Or in the opposite, maybe even as a reaction to that, one might spend all of their time and energy devoted to their family, going here and going there, and so much so that concern for the nations, prayer, doing good in the world around them, it all goes neglected. One desire, a command, a good thing swallows up another. And if, if this convicts any of you here this morning, that's a good thing. An idol creeping up in your life has been exposed, and when it's torn down, listen, you'll be all the better for it. Work, health, ministry, family, all benefit when idols come down, and everything is put in its proper place with God overall. And, and, and now I suspect for most of us, not all of us, most of us, we're like the ones sitting in the passenger seat. And yes, you've given God the keys, but you still want to tell him how to drive. You've given your life to God, you've cement, surrendered to him, and, and you even want to do what he commands you, but you want to go your own way. Or you want to do what you want at the exclusion of what he commands. But being a slave means you don't get to pick and choose. Just for example, you don't get to choose to be a good hus uh, choose between being a good husband or being concerned about taking the Gospels to the nations. And you can't say, well, I've, run, I've done really good in one area, personal devotion, and because I've done really good in the area of personal devotion, I can let my responsibilities as an employee or a husband or a church member slide. No, God is the one who decides what we do, and our only concerns as Christians is knowing what God commands and doing it. We ought to bring our entire lives into conformity to the will of God. God, and some are going to be better in some areas than others. They just are. It's going to be different for everybody in this room, but we are concerned about all of the commands that God has given us. And there are seasons in life, too. There are seasons when you have young children and your family will demand more of your time and attention, and it's right to give them that time and attention. But the temptation will be to let those other commands, things that might even enable you to be a better, more godly husband or wife, like prayer and the word and devotion and evangelism, and the temptation will be to let them slide. Don't let them slide. And you know this and I know this. 
whenever you have sought to honor the Lord and kept all things in balance, you are blessed and your family is blessed. Just, just think for a moment with me. When have you ever left prayer meeting or a time of prayer and you've gone home and been a worse father or mother? When have you spent time consistent in personal devotion and your family has suffered? When have you been concerned about advancing the kingdom by reaching the lost in your workplace or caring for the widow on your street and it's caused your soul to sink? When have you fathers dedicated yourselves to doing family devotions and your work and employment suffered? Never. Not a single time. And yet, when you have neglected all of those things, haven't you found that everything just turned rotten? All the time. Every time. And we neglect the word, neglect the commands of Christ, neglect repentance, neglect holiness, neglect prayer, neglect our family, neglect the devotional life, whatever it is. You do that, and we all know we do it, but when you do, don't you taste how sour it is? and it undermines the very things you hope to do. And so isn't it then encouraging to hear that God knows best? And isn't it encouraging to think that you can look back on your life and you can see how when you were eagerly obeying Him, how much more joyful you were? What a freedom it is to be a slave to Christ. You don't have to figure out what works. You don't have to learn by trial and error. You don't have to strive and fail and strive again. You just need to do what he tells you to do and it will go well for your soul and well for your family and your homeschool and your church and your soul. And I, I know maybe some of you are thinking, look, I'm just too busy for all that. Let me share you, with you something that's been a tremendous blessing and encouragement to me over the years. Many times it has been a rock I have fallen onto when I was overwhelmed. And it's taught in Romans 12 too and it's, it's this, it's simple. The will of God is perfect. The will of God is perfect. That means when I am trusting in Him, I'm seeking to do His will, I will always have enough time in the day to do everything He's asked me to do. I will never run into a conflict between one area of His command and another. I may not have the time to do everything that I want to do, and very often you'll have time to do some of what you do, but you will always have time to do what God has called you to do. And none of the commands of God are contradictory. You never have to sacrifice your family for the sake of ministry. And you never have to sacrifice ministry for the sake of your family. Now you can get caught up in all kinds of things that God does not call you to. But God will help you to do what he requires in every instance always. He has given his word. I, I think of Martin Luther, he said, I have so much to do today, I must pray at least three hours if I hope to get it done. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, the only way I'm going to do anything is if God is with me. And so the greater the need on me, the greater my need of Him. Or I remember once, I was, I was so anxious, it was when I was directing a Bible camp in Cape Breton, and I was given the opportunity to preach, and I I prayed about it, and I, I took it, and I don't remember where the opportunity was, but uh, after I accepted the opportunity, I began to think about what I had done, and I began to think, you know, a sermon usually takes me quite a long time to 
to figure out, and this was, this was 10 years ago, and I was pretty slow when it came to that sort of thing, and I don't know how much progress I've made since, but I had a busy week running the camp, and I only had out of the whole week just over an hour to prepare. And if any of you have ever prepared to preach or teach before, you know that an hour is not much, even for the best of us. Well, I easily could have melted under the pressure, and so, yo, woe is me, what have I done? But this verse was such a comfort to me. I said to myself, God has set this task before me. He is sovereign over the time. He knew I would only have an hour and a bit to, to do it. Certainly, if it is from him, he will enable me to meet the task. And the hour and 15 minutes was enough. He blessed the time he gave, and what normally would have taken me a week was finished in an hour. The Lord, his will is perfect, not only in his commands, but also in the time that he gives you to do them. And no, he won't bless slothfulness. But if you set out to keep his commands as a servant, as a father, as a mother, as a child, as a church member, as an ambassador for Christ, he really will help you. He will. You're not alone in any of it. He is with you. And you will be amazed when you trust him. You will be amazed to see his hand at work in your life, accomplishing things you would have only dreamed of. But it's only if you've given your life to him. That's if you really do want to please him. The course of your life is to please him. I mean, we could labor this for days, so, so let me make it really simple and to the point. Is your concern to do the will of God? If not, and all your religion is to accomplish some self-set goal and you dismiss what God commands you, as if defying the Lord Almighty was a small thing, be concerned for your soul. You may be walking in darkness. Let me give you an example that might help. I want you to consider a husband. A husband who is not loving his wife. And so you, you, you are aware of this and you go to him as a friend and you counsel him and you show him in the scriptures. God commands you to love your wife. That man is going to respond in one of two ways and they're going to tell you where he walks. Either he'll begin to make excuses. Oh, you don't know what she's like. She never does this or never does that. And, and, and he goes on and on about why he refuses to love his wife like God commands. And he gives excuses for, I'm not going to obey because of this. Or he's going to say, yeah, you're right. And I know and I want to pray for me and help me and keep me accountable so that I will. He sees that he is in disobedience and he wants to make it right. Not primarily with or even for his wife. But he wants to make it right before God. He wants to do the will of his father and he works towards that goal. When a person, a believer, is confronted about disobedience in their life, they respond by wanting to be obedient. Maybe not initially, but certainly quickly. God comes and shows them, this is the way, now walk in it. If you have no desire to do the will of God, and when your will runs up against his word, you never yield, you just balk at it. Then you lie when you say you know him, and the truth is not in you. I mean, I, I don't know how else verse 4 can be read. There is no other way to read it. When God saves a person, he transitions them out of darkness into light, and when they're in that light, they see everything differently. 
and surrendering to Christ and bowing the neck to his yoke. It isn't burdensome. It's not. It's light and it's easy. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, right? It's light and easy, but it's not non-existent. There is work to be done. There's a yoke to be born in the Christian life. Right? That's the example, that, that's the distinction Christ is making. Before, a heavy yoke that was hard. Now, a light yoke that is easy. And Christ comes alongside and puts his head under the other side and carries it with you. There's work to be done in the Christian life. And if you wonder, well, I think we should relate to God as sons, not as slaves. I think you're missing the point, Corey. We're sons. Doesn't make a difference. Look at our example in Christ in John 4, 36 and John 5, 30. Jesus said to them, who is Jesus? The Son of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Or John 5, 30. I can do nothing by myself. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, the true son, the firstborn, always delighted to do the will of his father. And he shows us by example that it's no burden and no loss. He shows us what it means to be a son. It is to delight in doing the father's will. And in this sense, there is no difference between the two, slave or son. I mean, we're not, we're not prodigal sons running away from God into a far country. We are obedient sons like Christ, seeking to do His will. And that takes us right into verse 6. By this we may know, listen to this, that we are in Him. In who? In Christ. By this we might know that we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All this rule keeping, it's, it's not just for the sake of arbitrarily keeping commands. And it isn't even keeping commands for our own good, though it is this. The end is the representation of the one whose name we bear. If you are a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. And, he, and his will, his food, his sustenance, what he lived for was to do the will of his Father. Why verse 6 says, whoever abides in Christ must walk as he walked. If Christ's will was to do the will of his Father, and Christ is in you, your will will be to do the will of the Father. You see how it goes together? If you abide in Christ, you are a Christian, that means Christ is in you. And because Christ, who is in you, always did the will of his Father, you will want to do that will as well. You will walk as Jesus walked, keeping the will, doing the will of his Father. That's a tall order, isn't it? Walk as Jesus walked. If that meant perfectly, we'd all be done for because that's impossible. We won't do that until we walk with him in glory. But we can walk on the same path that he walked. And that's what this passage means. We can follow in his footsteps. Have you ever seen a child trying to walk 
in the footsteps of their father in the snow. Not very hard this year, but sometimes the snow is 20 inches deep, and it's, it's a challenge. The child doesn't do a very good job. The legs aren't long enough. The snow comes right up to their waist. Sometimes they fall short. Sometimes they fall down. And they don't have the strength to move in the snow like their dad does. And it can look pretty silly sometimes, can't it? You know, they get two feet in the one hole, and then they try and hop to the next. That's not how dad did it. But guess what? Everyone who sees that kid, they know something about him. They know he wants to be like his father. He is walking where his father walked. He's following in his father's footsteps. And the same is true for believers. They walk in the same path their Lord walked. We follow in Jesus' footsteps. And what was that path? Doing the Father's will. That's why walking as He walked is placed in the context of keeping His commandments. Jesus kept them. He desired to keep them. It sustained Him to keep them. And if we follow Him, we will too. So you see the difference between light and darkness. There is a world of difference between someone who lives their life totally indifferent to the will of God and His commands. You know, the Bible says, you say, yeah, I don't care, saved by grace. If you're saved by grace, you will care. Totally different to someone indifferent to the commands of God and someone who is striving to bring their life into conformity to the will of their Heavenly Father. There is a world of difference between an, an onlooker who, who won't walk on the path because they don't like the snow and a child trying to follow in their father's footsteps. I would rather be a man who fell on his face every day in pursuit of God than someone who never fell at all because they couldn't be troubled to walk in a narrow, difficult way. And so if you have no concern to be like Jesus, no concern to do the will of God, only concern for yourself, then don't say, I know him. Don't, don't lie to yourself. He does not abide in you. He can, if you humble yourself, forget the deception, humble yourself and say, it's not true, I don't belong to him, come to him and be forgiven, then it will be true, but don't go on being deceived, thinking it's all right, and I walk in darkness, but if you are waiting after Christ, you're striving, you're leaping, you're falling, nobody walks in hard places without tripping every once in a while. But you're following after Him. You want to be like your Father. You want to walk as Jesus walked. You want your life. Your, that's the cry of your heart. Lord, please bring more of my life into conformity to your will. I want to be like Jesus. If that's you, then be encouraged, saint. And be encouraged to run all the more. To jump farther and throw off whatever would slow you down in your pursuit of the Heavenly Father your Heavenly Father, to do His will. It will never disappoint you. You will be blessed in every way imaginable and in ways you could not even now imagine. He is real. He rewards those who seek Him, and those who seek Him find Him. So seek Him with all of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, these are easy words to say. Make them a reality in our lives, Lord, that we would seek you to know you, that we would yield more of our life to you, the direction of it, that we would be more about our Father's business 
O Lord, we so often think we know best. We know nothing at all. You know what is best for us. And I pray, God, that we would trust you more wholeheartedly. Lord, to give you the keys of our life and get in the trunk and say, lead where you will. Lord, help, help us to see how liberating a thing it is, how freeing it is, how many trials and pains in our life are brought about because we refuse to do this very thing that we would be free of them. Lord, nobody who seeks you is ever disappointed. Nobody who follows Christ is ever disappointed. They may have their feet wounded, and it's hard, but it is always worth it. Lord, show us your goodness and your grace. And Lord, I pray for those who are deceived and don't know, Lord, that they walk in darkness. Take the veil off of their eyes. Let the light come in that they would see the light. And when they see the light, Lord, don't let them retreat again with a new veil, but Lord, to repent, humble themselves, and come to you that they may begin walking as you walked. I pray for those who love you, Lord, and are discouraged. Lord, you want them to be assured of your love for them, to know that they have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that the words this morning would be an encouragement to them, that they, Lord, would say, I will follow after Jesus and that you would encourage and strengthen their souls to do so. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would strive to know you. Not just to know about you, but to really know you in our lives, in our hearts, in our souls. Lord, that we would believe these things only come out by prayer. Certain things in our lives, Lord, people we want to see saved, sins that are thorny and won't go away, problems in the family that just aren't getting better, problems in the world around us and we don't know what to do. You know what to do. You've told us there are things that only, only are dealt with through prayer and through fasting. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people seeking you with all of our hearts and our minds, our soul and our strength. Lord, what good we will have when we draw near to you. Lord, the things of this world and its trials become dim as we walk in the light of your glory and grace. Thank you, Father, for the great hope that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Lord, there is so much that could be said and so much that could be done. Lord, I pray that you would make up for the great lack in me this morning and comfort, strengthen, and encourage your people. Amen.